Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. Hope it's going great with everybody else. As always, if this is the first time you're tuning in, thank you so much for joining. Um, make sure you check out all the work that we put out there on the internet. Um, in this episode, we are going to be doing a Q&A. And for future Q&As, you could get access to asking a question uh, by following me at Focus Compound. Also, if you want to get access to our podcast backlog, uh, daily investing topics from Jeff, and also frequent videos of where we just pull up the camera and talk. I don't even want to edit it. I just want it to be a couple minutes. I don't have to edit it. It's very informal, but just talking about stuff that's on our minds, mm-hmm. taking you on our research trips, um, go to focuscompound.com slash app, and you could sign up for $7.95 a month. So in today's podcast, like I said, we're going to be doing a Q&A. Right. And the first question comes from our friend Trey, who says, how should investors estimate their expected returns when investing internationally if your home country experiences different inflation expectations and interest rates than the international local uh so that's a highly technical question economists have written papers about it and stuff so yeah the purchasing power parity um suggests that uh there's two sorts of ways of looking at it. one is a straight model that is uh that purchasing power parity should be the same between two uh, countries the other one adjusts for changes in gdp per capita um putting aside the gdp per capita thing which is like an observed thing of how it actually works versus the, th- the theory um in theory uh, what that means is that that's why currencies trade at different levels. In theory, it means if the market is efficient, it's taking two things into account. What's the interest rate differential and what's the rate of inflation? So in other words, what are real interest rates? Um, the expected rates of those two things. So for instance, if you expected that Switzerland will have lower intre- uh, will have the same interest rates as the United States, but will have lower inflation than the United States, then there's a differential that explain why this um, Swiss franc should trade at a premium to the US dollar. Um, so that's supposed to be baked in. Uh, now, is it or is it not? That depends. You can look. But that would explain why there are those differences. Uh, in reality, it doesn't always work out that way. There seem to be differences in currencies that have little to do with actual reasonable expectations between the two. Like the example I gave of Swiss currencies, um, uh, Scandinavian currencies versus the U.S., things like that, um, clearly sometimes have been out of whack for reasons that just don't make a lot of sense based on the interest rates and the inflation. It has to do with something else. I think it's most likely with smaller currencies and stuff that that can happen. Um, people just pile into it. There's trading and it's a very you know momentum driven. And so I think it can get out of whack that way. You should just do the estimate yourself, which would be um, mainly that you have to adjust everything for inflation. You can do that. The simplest way to do it is a point by point thing where you say, I'm going to hold this for 15 years or something. What do I expect the currencies to be at 15 years from now? Um, And obviously, if you're having inflation, that's a weakening of one currency versus the other to the extent there's inflation in one country and not the other. So like I was looking at something in Turkey today, and um, there's very meaningful inflation in Turkey, very much not meaningful inflation in the United States. That makes a huge difference. Um, But it's a difference that has to do with you making the purchase right now. And you can hedge these things. I do not generally hedge these things, but you can. So that, however, you can't realistically hedge things that are exposures the company itself has. So like the Turkey example I gave, they earn all their money in Turkey. I'd use U.S. dollars to to buy, sort of to buy them. And uh, as a result, it's easier to understand that. It's much harder to understand something like Hunter Douglas or something. Half of its 
is in um, like US dollars, half in euros. It trades in one currency. You're buying in another currency. That's more complicated. But it, you just read papers on it. I'm purchasing power parity. And economists will explain to you theoretically how that's all supposed to be baked into it in an efficient market. Has that ever stopped you from investing in some places? Uh, currency stuff has stopped me from investing in it, but not for the reasons they're explaining. Runaway inflation stuff, not runaway, but very high inflation wouldn't necessarily be a problem if there were things like central bank independence and stuff like that. It actually could be fine to buy into a country with high inflation if you, if you have a product that you can raise the rate uh, that um, can raise its prices over time. Uh, the reason is more countries that I don't think the central bank is independent, that might devalue their currency in different ways, things like that, semi-authoritarian or authoritarian governments, things like that. Uh, um, as an industry, do you consider banks a high quality or low quality business? High quality. Why is that? They earn high cash returns on the amount of money that they invest, on the amount of owner's capital. Very small banks, uh, subscale, don't really do that. But banks, once they achieve a certain level of scale, do. And um, yeah, if you look at the cash on cash returns and how much value they create over time, I'd say they are a high quality business. And the banks are virtually certain to be bigger 100 years from now. I mean, they could be around for a very long time, too. We're not virtually certain to be bigger, but banks can be around for 100 plus years. Yeah. If you have the right people running them, banks create a ton of value. Uh, it's management is more important at a bank than at most companies, though. OK, no, but let's unpackage that. Yeah. How so? Like well, what, okay. what 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 do you define as a well run bank? Uh, a well-worn bank is one that earns, so it earns high returns on its invested capital, on its owner's capital, which requires generally a couple things. One is extreme, extreme expense control for most banks. There's, there's rare examples that it's okay without the extreme expense control. But here's the thing. Banks have very low competition. So in a very low competition industry, let's say like a railroad or something, your returns are going to be heavily dependent on internal factors. So it depends mainly on cost consciousness and things like that. Banks don't have a, banks have a very hard time for regulatory reasons and other reasons of ever taking a customer from someone else. This is true also of ad agencies. It's true to some extent of insurance companies, less so though. And it's definitely true of monopolies like railroads and utilities and stuff, um, uh, as long as the utility is not regulated. But the factors that are very important are how leanly run they are. And that's and then also, to some extent, their success with loans. So if they're good lenders and they're run very, very leanly, then you'll have success. But it's also possible to keep all your customers while having overly inflated costs um, and things like that. So two different people running the same bank would get very different earnings out of them. That is less true at a retailer mm -hmm. um, because the only way to keep the retailer in business and keep their market share and stuff is to run it very leanly usually. Um, some so you just get a very different result that way and I've, the example of railroads is a great one there's two books that i th would say people should read there's one is a biography of e.h harriman um which i don't remember the name of but it's uh the legend something like that and it was a very good book and then the other one is uh what was his name hunter harrison railroader right. is that his name yeah hunter yeah. harrison yeah. and at railroader and uh those two are the two most important to me the two most important people in the history of railroads um from uh, investor perspective uh, and b what they both did uh, gives you a real indication of what happens when you have monopoly type businesses um, and how much money they can make mm -hmm. and how you can also run them so that they barely make any money. Mm -hmm. So it just gives you an idea of you could either have incredibly high returns on equity or barely any. And it has nothing to do with competitive factors. It's all about how efficiently you run them. So it's very important that a bank be run efficiently. And that is a total cultural thing. And it's a thing from uh, a management focused entirely on those sorts of things. They, it's very easy for banks to get complacent and not earn high enough returns on equity. Most banks I see are earning way less than they could be earning. Okay. And then if they, if their return on equity, I mean, what are your thoughts on um, big banks? Like for example, 
um, you know, like what type of lending do you would you look for them to do, or does that not matter? Is it a case by case basis? It, it depends. It's case by case. Because I mean, let's explain a bank, right? They right. take in deposits, so mm-hmm. it's a source of float. They take in deposits and they lend right. it out. They lend it out, or they buy securities, or they yeah, those are the two things that they can do with it. So um, the most important thing I would say is that they should be doing lending that they know how to do. That's the most important thing. So I could say to you, is energy lending good or bad? If you, they've been doing energy lending for 40 years and they're in states that are uh, where, you know, that's what you do, it's probably pretty good. They probably have some of the best lenders in that business and stuff. If they do all CNI lending in one metropolitan area and they've been doing that for 20 years, that's probably a pretty good thing for them to do. Expanding into geographies that are new to them, expanding into any sort of line of business that's new to them. This is very dangerous in banking. It's very, very dangerous in insurance. Usually they'll the last one in is the first one out, you know, the, the one that last makes loans um, in, in an area is the one who will make the worst loans in that area and who will exit the business the fastest. Mm-hmm. Um, so someone with a lot of experience and has been in a very long time, there are some kinds of loans that I think are somewhat riskier. Um, I'm always worried about sort of construction lending and stuff like that. There's different forms of construction lending, but that is more speculative and certain things that are tied to more cyclical kinds of things. If they're in the, development phase of it not so much if they're in the producing phase of it but anything that you're lending against something that hasn't yet um anything i'm worried about anything that a significant part of the loan people don't think is related to the cash flows of it it's much easier if it's related to the cash flows so even when i say things like energy versus construction and stuff if it's construction lending where they think it's has a lot to do with the value of the um of the collateral, that's more worrying than energy lending against producing wells, which they calculated based on cash flows. Mm-hmm. I think cash flows are always the, the the character of the person who's borrowing from you. Then and the cash flows, I think, are the two most important things. And, and then whether we, it's your circle competence, basically, yeah. And we're, actually, we're going to make this Q and A out of two episodes because okay. I think that's actually great if we do more in depth answers. But um, uh, you know, speaking of loans, for example, the way that you typically value loans is you think about it: uh, customer deposits per share. It's value banks. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, sure. Value so the, I, I think in general. And that's what Apple thinks about it too. Right. I think in general, not how everyone agrees with me. And there are exceptions to this. I've seen some banks where there are exceptions, but they're very rare. We, we talked about one before. It's We haven't talked about it on the podcast, but it's a very unusual situation in which a small number of um, relationships are both generating the deposits and are who they're lending to basically uh, to a significant extent. So that that's a little bit unusual, um, but that can also happen. Like I did mention a CNI thing and stuff that can happen there. Um, so it does sometimes happen if they have very big relationships, but the issue for most banks is it's difficult to have a deposit base. That's all made up of people, companies, whatever, which is also who you're lending to. And so there's going to tend to be one part of the business that creates the value and one part that's more commodity. And to me, the value is usually created on the deposit side generally. For mm-hmm. the big banks, it, it's very much true that that's the case. So the type of deposits they have. Yes. Uh, when you're making very big loans and stuff, the the lending is more like a commodity. You're outputting co- the commodity called money. But the deposit side is more like if you imagine a mine that's producing copper. If you have much lower costs at this one mine than everybody else in the world does, then you have a much more valuable um, mine per pound of copper that you produce. Same thing. It's much more valuable to have low cost deposits. So I think the cost side of banks on the deposit side, the cost of money is where they tend to have their advantages. It's certainly true of very, very big um, banks. I don't think I've seen many banks get really big um, except through ha- uh, successfully and stuff, um, except through having uh, cost advantages on the deposit side. So that everything that Buffett does in banking that I've seen has all been driven by uh, the deposit side and the the co- how cheap the deposits are, how big the deposits are versus what he's paying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
a the good way to actually get a lot of Buffett's history on banks is go to, I think it's uh, BuffettFAQ.com or something. I've tweeted out many times and just literally control F banking and you could get everything that he's yeah, ever really said about banking. Yeah, the other one I'd say is read that book, Capital Allocation, because of the chapter that it has in the Rockford Bank, because that's excellent the way he thinks about the Rockford Bank and gives you examples of why it was a particularly attractive bank. Mm-hmm. Next question, how does Jeff project out revenue growth for a company, for NACO? Does he project out mine by mine how much coal they'll deliver and then multiple uh, and then multiple that by estimate revenue uh, slash ton? Is Domino's estimated by revenue slash franchise and estimate number of new franchisees? Do you look at industry estimates? Yeah. So for NACO, I wrote some things up on the website and stuff. Um, I actually did look at like my best estimate of how much profit per ton they do, like operating profit per ton, although adjusted for different cash things and stuff. They amortize certain things. So their reported earnings are a little different. They, they amortize some contracts. So there's some completely non-cash stuff in there. Their, their earnings are higher. Their cash earnings are higher than it appears to be. Um, so putting that stuff aside, how much cash will actually be generated by the unconsolidated subsidiaries? Yeah. I do it by um, guessing how much they'll have per ton that they do. Uh, sorry, per million tons. Mm. Um, but uh, it doesn't vary a ton, and the it doesn't vary a lot. And the company gives pretty detailed information on that. Actually, most of the mines have their own site, and I could find things about how much they produced in each of the past years and all those sorts of things. Some of it's probably not accurate. To be honest, like they're going to lose a mine that's very small. And someone was asking me about it. I have no idea if a, a mine that is one tenth the size of another mine actually generates the same amount of profits. I don't know enough about the scale that way. So losing production at one mine might not be nearly as harmful as losing a big mine. Um, a big mine might be disproportionately profitable. I, I don't know that. But I did calculate out the exact amount of how much I think they make per ton and stuff like that and tried to calculate to the best of my ability how much I think the cost plus their management contract was, and I found data on what lignite is supposed to be at at places. And since NACO is such a big producer of lignite um, in the United States, I felt that government sources and stuff on estimating what the price of lignite is were giving me pretty accurate estimates of what NACO's is. So I was trying to guess how much sort of their management fee thing is on that and stuff. So yeah, I did do that exact calculation. Got it. And then anything on uh, franchisees or like in franchise model? Yeah, what it said there, the revenue franchise, yeah. And we tried to figure out how much the average Domino's um, uh, franchise owner um, actually makes a year and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Uh, Domino's is very interesting to me because I think it's a very good deal for the um, person having the franchise. Mm-hmm. And some companies that we won't name, or right now we won't name them, uh, the reason I have invested in them is because I think it's a rough deal for the uh, the franchise, yeah, mm-hmm. the, the franchise owner, even if it's a good deal for the the um, company that's doing the franchising. So that's my biggest concern with the franchise thing. And I think Domino's looked very attractive for the franchise yeah. economics. And their coffee sucks. So we don't like that. Some uh, people... Company that you're- <laughs> oh, oh so, that's a... Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Same topic, right? Some people that, that probably follow our self focus compound will get that joke. All so right. It'll be like Domino's or coffee? Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> the one that Jeff's talking about. Okay. Uh, Jeff's thoughts on Virtu Motors and VTU trading update. Is it cheaper now than when it was when you bought? What is his fair value? That's from Vetlo. Uh, I don't think it's cheaper now than when I bought it. Um, because I think they'll have to take on debt and stuff like that. I mean, they take on a certain kind of debt, but they have to they have to borrow against their inventory and things like that. I think all car dealers were harmed by COVID to an extent that is great enough that it's not really much cheaper than where I bought it, even though the stock price is lower, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I would say that's, yeah, that's um, not true, uh, which is confusing because with the NACO thing, like what I say, NACO is cheaper. Yeah, it's, it's cheaper, even though it's lost uh, customers or will lose customers. With Virtu, I don't think that's the case because I think COVID really did harm car dealers. But I don't think it's much different. I mm-hmm. think that it's similar. Their CEO tweets a lot. 
Yes. So I, yeah. So I think it's similar is what I would say. I think that you still like the price has changed. Yeah. And I would say the price to my appraisal has not really moved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then somebody added on that said, why do you think Cambria and Virtu aren't value traps? Operators are great, but realizing book value seems to be attentive at best. Yeah. You just wait a while. I mean, I agree with you. I don't know if the stocks will trade at book value when they will or at what time. If one company acquires another, they'll, they're going to do it at book value probably. I don't think car dealers would sell them. I don't think large car dealers would sell themselves out at values much below book value. It is true that since Brexit, all the UK car dealers have been cheap versus book value. Mm -hmm. But they aren't incredible. I mean, <laughs> Virtu's free cash flow yield or something, the last year, this year, next year, if there hadn't been COVID, would have been double digit type stuff. So... I don't know, after five years or something, you get half the market cap back in cash. Mm -hmm. I, I, it doesn't bother me. I mean, yeah, stocks sometimes trade at what seem entire industries that seem like absurd prices. The fact that the industry hasn't traded book value for years doesn't mean to me that it won't in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, We'll do the last question okay. and then we'll do a part two, which I think is great because the answers have been better than... Uh, because we could spend more time on them. Uh, sorry, Jeff. <laughs> uh, it says, have you ever got any overarching views on SPACs? Are there any scenarios where you see them as desirable and accretive to shareholder returns and perhaps the flip side? Why they so commonly seem to destroy shareholder value? I think they tend to, dis um, I think they tend to just destroy shareholder value because of how they're set up. Um, so there's some problems with them generally. Uh, I don't think that they are... Uh, I think they have too many promoters involved with them and stuff like that. People trying to make money off of things and using the public markets to do that. And I think that they aren't open-ended enough. So they kind of have the opposite of what you want. You want kind of permanent capital that why is this an, this is like an accident why it's public, mm -hmm. you know, like Berkshire Hathaway. There's like, he shouldn't have left that company public Buffett. He should have bought it out and just had it, you know, mm -hmm. but he didn't. And that's the kind of company that creates a lot of value over time. And when you, reverse that they tend to be the kinds of things that don't create value over time as a general rule um i would rather companies that you're like why is this company public not this company's public to make a lot of money for the people who are involved in creating it and and that i i think i've written about or um researched and liked some things that are specs um after they kind of fell apart and replaced management and reorganized into just something else uh, like sometimes they bought something that's turned out to be okay and mm -hmm. stuff, but usually it's been disastrous for people who got in on the potential of them doing something. And it's only worked out if you bought it later uh, that that happened to be how it was created. In fact, sometimes I think that can be good because, um, there's not a natural shareholder base for it. That's actually interested in the long run. Mm -hmm. They're, they're interested in it as like a catalyst. So then they get out of it and stuff like that. And so it actually, I think can be very attractive after some, an industry has fallen apart and stuff, they did their deal. Industry got clobbered. Everyone um, who was in it for that kind of stuff got out. So if you want to read Corner Berkshire and Fairfax threads like about those things now and figure out which ones actually uh, will be a good business, but like everyone will bail on it and stuff, mm -hmm. I think it can be attractive for buying it years later. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for asking us questions on the Focus Compounding Podcast. To be able to ask questions in the future, uh, once a week, I do tweet out a, a call for questions. Be sure to follow me at Focus Compound on um, Twitter. Uh, I want to thank everybody so much for um, joining in with us. If you want to get access to our podcast backlog, frequent 
um, videos, which we're actually going to do Q and A videos as well. So you can email yes. focuscompounding at gmail.com. And then we're going to take those questions and make a video out of it. So it won't just be a lot the, like this just for the people or the app. Yes. Just yeah, for yeah. people that are, are on the app. So, uh, if you want to get access to all that and check it out, uh, having a lot of fun doing it, go to focuscompounding.com slash app. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in. A rating and review goes a very long way for us and we will see you in the next podcast.